Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking to Vincent Rodriguez, who plays Josh Chan on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Plus, we'll be talking about how TV shaped Donald Trump. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello. Hi, Jen. So last week we introduced a new segment we're calling The Prompt. Uh, last week's pro- In last week's prompt, we talked about which Gilmore, Gil- Gilmore Girls character we would want to recast if we could. This week, in light of the election... We are asking, what TV president would you most want in real life? I guess I, I guess I'm supposed to go first. Huh? <laughs> I think I would go with President Roslin from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, just because uh, you know I wouldn't know the first thing about how to be president, and uh, that was the situation that she found herself in when like 99% of the human race was wiped out, and she rose to the occasion. I would like to think that I would. I don't think I would do as good a job as Mary McDonald did, uh, being the guardian of the fleet, but uh, that's my pick. That's a great pick. Um, uh, Jen and I were talking beforehand, and it looks like for the second week in a row, we, we've picked the same the same character. Can I guess who it is? Sure. It's uh, Bartlett, right? No. Well, Bartlett was... I, I, oh, well, I had a tie. Okay. Bartlett was one of mine, but go ahead, say the other one, Gazelle. Well, the other one isn't a recurring TV president, but it is... Um, it's probably, like, of all the TV presidents out there, I, I think is the most ideal TV president that we've ever seen on television, and that is Lisa Simpson. 1600. Sweet. Excellent question. Yes, I am proud to be America's first straight female president. (laughs) Helen? Wasn't I wearing a hat? Yes, yes, you were. Now, in conclusion, my administration will focus on the three R's reading, writing, and refilling the ocean. Thank you very much. Oh, that's cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Because she took over after Trump was in office and ruined everything and and was trying to smooth things over. So, um. (laughs) okay. Yeah, he had left. uh, He had she inherited a big a budget crunch from him, and you know this was the episode everyone was talking about last week that the two thousand Simpson episode where Bart. Uh, has shown a vision, a vision of the future, and Lisa is the president. I remember she, she's it. She's yeah. taking over from Trump, and you know who wouldn't want Lisa Simpson to be our president? I just don't. <laughs> Why well, can't she... we have animated characters in the White House? There should no not be any barriers anymore. Lisa Simpson almost was our president. I know. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the crazy part. <laughs> Um, I also I want to give a shout out to one other president that I would be perfectly happy to have in the White House. And that was uh, David Palmer from mm. uh, the first few seasons of 24. Yeah, he was a pretty level headed, principled individual. That was uh, my second so, choice as well. Um, yeah. yeah, things did not turn out well for him in the end. Though. No, they did not. <laughs> so that is this week's prompt. If you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. As you know, we've inherited quite a budget crunch from President Trump. How bad is it, Secretary Van Houten? We're broke. The 
country is broke. This week we we thought the election is the number one thing on our minds, and we're a TV podcast. And strangely enough, this election has landed us a reality TV star as our president. New York, my city, where the wheels of the global economy never stop turning. So we thought, you know, we could, it would be interesting to talk about TV in light of Trump because of how much TV has shaped Donald Trump's image. And that's not just because of The Apprentice, but in terms of how we've engaged with him on TV for the past year and longer. Just the number of sound bites of Trump standing on a stage, pontificating about banning Muslims from the country, making fun of disabled people, leading chance to lock Hillary up. And the number of jokes we've routinely seen made about him on television, in the media, that didn't quite take him seriously enough. Mm-mm. And this, you know, a lot of the discussion now is how we all became somewhat desensitized to him because it was happening on television so often. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, Matt, if you could, you know, you just wrote a piece about how uh, the normalization of Trump. Yeah. And this weekend alone, we, we've saw SNL in 60 Minutes take on take on Trump in different ways. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just how how you've seen this normalization happen. Well, it's, you know, we're we're welcoming our new insect overlords to use another Simpsons reference. That's that's what's happening in the media. That's what always happens in the media. Um, I, I, I think this is an extraordinary situation because uh, not to mince words, I mean, evil spirits have been unleashed upon the land by this victory, and whether or not they can be put back in the bottle remains to be seen. But there's been not only a wave of harassment and violence following this uh, this election, but um, quickly followed anytime it's reported by uh, P- Trump supporters denying it and saying that it's a hoax, which is very, very disturbing because it... it uh, it's a form of denial. Like, we don't have a Holocaust yet, but we have the denial, which is really, really frightening. And uh, um, and here we have uh, People magazine uh, putting him on the cover, like striding confidently towards the camera as if he's in the opening credits of his old show, The Apprentice. And we've got Leslie Stahl doing a sit-down with him on 60 Minutes and, and sort of smiling at him in a sort of curious, skeptical way, like, my, aren't you an interesting creature? Um, and you've got Dave Chappelle hosting Saturday Night Live and uh, asking us to give Trump a chance. And, you know, granted, that came after he made a lot of jokes about him. But nevertheless, this is a guy who devoted an hour of a recent stand-up set prior to his Saturday Night Live appearance to ripping Hillary Clinton and parsing the, the whole pussy-grabbing comment that he made, uh, trying to make it sound like it was less venomous than it actually was. <laughs> Donald Trump, he did it. He's he's our president. And I feel bad saying it. I'm staying in a Trump hotel right now. <laughs> I don't know if he's gonna make a good president, but he makes a swell hotel suite. I'm gonna tell you that. <laughs> Housekeeping comes in in the morning, cleans my room, and I just hey, good morning, housekeeping. Grab a big handful of pussy and say, you know. <laughs> Boss said it was okay. It's it's uh, just very disturbing. It's very disturbing how quickly everybody's rolled over. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, we need an armed insurrection immediately, but a bit of skepticism on the part of the media uh, 
would be nice. <laughs> it would be nice. I mean, this is different. This is different. This is different than other presidents. I was no fan of George W. Bush either, but there was nothing like this that happened after he was elected. I think the only um, the only acknowledgement of this normalization that I saw on a mainstream network this weekend was John Oliver last night, who kind of made a call to um, made made a plea for us to not normalize him because Trump is not normal, and kind of made a call to action that, that we all, you know do our part to kind of do whatever we can. Optimism, optimism is nice if you can swing it, but you've got to be careful because it can feed into the normalization of Donald Trump. And he is not normal. He is abnormal. He's a human, what is wrong with this picture? He sticks out like a sore thumb, and frankly, he even looks like a sore thumb. So, so giving him a chance in the sense of not speaking out immediately against policies that he's proposed is dangerous because some of them are alarming. Well, that was nice of him. But, you know, we've I, I, I'm really, really tired of hearing uh, and seeing on social media um, just descriptions of how this late night host or that night, late night right. host eviscerated Trump right. in a monologue. And it's like it just reminds me of that line from. That line from Manhattan where a bunch of people are talking about Nazis marching on Skokie and uh, one of them says, did you read that scathing piece of commentary in dissent <laughs> no, <laughs> or commentary? I can't. It's like, you know, uh, I'm not sure that that's really the right solution to I don't, fascism. I don't think it's the solution. And John Oliver himself has joked at length about Trump and kind of dared him to to run for president in yeah. You know, so, I mean. Yeah. So and now we've got him, you know, acting as if he's, you know, standing atop the barricades, waving a flag. And, and we've got uh, on Saturday Night Live, we've got Kate McKinnon doing this very melancholy opening number performing uh, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, who presumably, uh, I guess, you know, died so that he wouldn't have to witness this. I don't know. And uh <laughs> You know, it's just it's uh, this is the same broadcast that uh, made Trump into a lovably harmless buffoon for for almost the entire length of the election and gave him 90 minutes of free airtime as if he were still a reality show host. And it's just it's it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical and it's ridiculous. Well, I guess my question about Saturday Night Live would be what what should they have done differently to open that show? I don't know, but I feel like the tone of that Kate McKinnon opening was was in was right in the ballpark of it. But it, this is something that you know once <laughs> they can't uh, how to put this, they can't unfuck what's been fucked. You right. Know? I mean, you know, since since we we have a new normal in terms of acceptable language in the Oval Office. Uh, well, actually, Nixon got there first. Uh, might as well just go ahead and put it that way. Um, I, it's the recriminations are just too late. They're just too late. And I don't see any indication that the media can undo its old habits. It's always been this way. It's always been this way. You know, Nixon Nixon appeared on Laugh-In at the same time that uh, he was dropping more tonnage on Southeast Asia than uh, all the bombs dropped during World War II combined. So, you know, this is something they always do. And they're, they're, they're corporate media and uh, and they're owned by conglomerates that have to do business with the United States government. And that's why the satire that we get on Saturday Night Live is is often very mild compared to the, right. you know, compared to the emotions that that inspired the satire. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I did. Well, I mean, and then. Sorry. No, go ahead, Jen. I was just going to say about 
back to John Oliver for a second. Um, you know, this morning I saw people sharing that, uh, as you suggested, Matt, on on social media, and and also people sort of saying, uh, gleefully saying, "Oh, the liberals are all upset. Oh, well, maybe you should share more John Oliver videos." And 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 the point of that being, and this is something I'll talk about later in the Aria section of the podcast, that you know whether that stuff just doesn't penetrate past, you know, the preaching to the choir element. And I, I don't know how we get past that. I mean, that that's the part of this that I think is a, a little more different than, say, going back to the Nixon era, which is that we we are in a position now where we are, are fed information from, quote unquote, like minded sources and, and don't move beyond it to have sort of a uh, more objective baseline real sense of what is going on and that 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 applies to everybody not not just the liberals but but conservatives everybody and i i just think that's a problem it's a huge problem i i also think that you know just in watching so much tv coverage watching these videos of all of all kinds you know from videos of hate crimes to to people covering trump at length repeatedly um, a friend reminded me of this is, you know, this can have a real impact on just us in terms of whether you are a person who was affected by what Trump has said or if you are deeply affected by it, it can lead to kind of this PTSD and depression that you have to kind of stay aware of as well just because this barrage of images, you might not know how it's affecting you. So I would just say, you know, mm-hmm. just take care of yourselves too as you're watching these things. Sometimes it's good to kind of tune out a little bit. Well, there's there, that that thing that Jen mentioned. This this phenomenon of everybody operating in their own bubble is precisely the reason why Trump uh, got elected, despite all of these traditional polling methods that said that he wouldn't be. And there there was a not only you know if if we had a way to measure um, social media metrics more effectively, and I guess it's still so new that maybe they haven't woven that into the mix as thoroughly as they should. They might have known that this was coming and they might have been able to see, uh, you know, the disaffection of a lot of minority voters with Clinton, perhaps. They might have been able to better predict the the um, the fact that a majority of women uh, voted for Trump, a slim majority, but still majority. And they might have been able of to white women, right? white women. Yeah. And they and they might have been able to uh, uh, just get a more accurate read on what was actually happening. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know how to get past this echo chamber thing. I mean, I'm. I'm certainly not going to sit here and pretend that I'm playing kumbaya with people who voted for Trump. In fact, I've unfriended a lot of people who did. I mean, for me, that's a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this it's bizarre sitting here doing this because we're, you know, we address political subjects, but this is not a political podcast, really. But um, the fact is millions of Americans voted for uh, uh what they perceive to be uh, an avenge, uh, to avenge insults uh, from the other side. Uh, and maybe to save a few bucks on their taxes and uh, and to just send a message, whatever that message is, <laughs> to quote Natural Born Killers, it's a message of of what I'm not exactly sure. Um, and uh, the concerns of women and people of color, Muslims, Mexican-Americans just were not even a factor. They just weren't a factor. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what television can do to address that. And, and I, I tend to think TV can't do anything to address that because there's just no way. Systemically, there's no way. And maybe the best solution is the same social media that uh, Trump harnessed so effectively can also be used as a counterweight. Well, mm-hmm. I, I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, just trying to look forward a little and 
imagine how this might affect our cultural landscape. Um, you know, Trump himself is so absurd. Something we were talking about at Vulture is, you know, what will happen to the state of comedy and satire now that we have this kind of political figure that no one imagined was possible. Will a ridiculous political figure on Veep be funny anymore? You know, is is our entire taste in comedy going to change over the next few years? Do you guys have any thoughts about, you know, how this might affect just just how we how we how we approach um, poli- not just political humor, but just just humor in general? Like, has humor has have you seen comedy going through these types of changes before? Yeah, where- I mean. I'm skeptical of saying anything about what's, what comedy will do just because I remember after 9-11 when everybody yeah. said, well, satire is dead, and it absolutely was not. Right. Um, so what I think is going to be more difficult is, is not so much Veep, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but um, you know, a show like House of Cards, where, which is a very serious drama uh, about somebody who is in a position of power who does really – diabolical things like how I mean, it was hard for me to stomach for a lot of different reasons to begin with and now d- will anyone have an appetite for that I, I think you might have an appetite for for veep but something like house of cards to me is is a, a tougher sell I think they will I, I mean I think you know again like like you're saying we've been here before I mean maybe not under these exact circumstances but we've been here before and I think like the shock I I am wary of People, not just in the media, but generally overstating this, this, um, the nature of the shock and the unprecedented nature of the shock. Because, yeah, there is something uniquely vile about about this situation, but um, humor is going to survive it. You know, people are can, people have continued to crack jokes in far worse circumstances than we're currently in, and we're going to, you know, we're going to keep doing it. I don't know what form the humor is going to take, but. If we can, if, if a movie like Anchorman could be released uh, during during the absolute peak of the Iraq War and the War on Terror, then you know we're gonna we're gonna find a way to laugh through this. Right. You know, I feel right. you know that's that's just obvious. I think, um, but uh, I think the the more immediate question is how are our um, homegrown comedic institutions going to deal with Trump? Because what is unique about Trump is. Uh, whether you were making fun of uh, Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter, you could be relatively confident that the president was going to not personally retaliate against you or your bosses. And Trump has given no guarantees that that's not going to happen. And in fact, he's at many points during the campaign alluded or flat out said that he's going to punish people who have criticized him. And now he has the entire apparatus of the national security state at his fingertips, and he can do that. So will he do it? Gee, I hope not. But uh, it's not like he hasn't warned us that he might. Right. I think there's going to be a chilling effect that's much more severe than what we saw after 9-11, where people were... Um, there wasn't really any censorship, any government censorship, but there was corporate censorship and I guess you would say self-censorship by by a lot of people and a lot of shows and a lot of media outlets. Um, and I think what we have here is something different. It's more akin to what someone might experience in a country that has ex- uh, that has been through authoritarian periods before where, you know, are we going to tell this joke? Uh, we, it better be really funny and really great and we better phrase it the right way. Otherwise, we can get our license pulled or, uh, you know, one of our one of our editors could suddenly find themselves uh, in jail for some tax problems that they thought were behind them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like there's all kinds of ways to go after people. One of the things I was thinking about uh, 
you know, it, during the Bush administration, there was this very short-lived uh, Comedy Central show called That's My Bush that was specifically making fun of, of George W. Bush uh, in a very targeted and just absurd way. Um, I wonder, to Matt's point, whether that kind of thing will be possible under a Trump uh, administration or whether anyone would even bother to try for, for a lot of different reasons, the retaliation potential, but also uh, I, I'm just not sure that you can mine comedy in the same way uh, that we did in some past instances. Um, I so. would I would say that I, I would say that 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 that's my bush. I can't believe that that came up again. It's it's like, you know, Darth Vader voice, <laughs> a, <laughs> a title I have not heard since. <laughs> you know, that's my bush. But but that show, you know, it's funny because like I I would disagree slightly with your description of the show, Jen, because I I, I remember when that show was on, and I think that was how people thought it was going to be but when it actually appeared most like probably 80 percent of the joke was it was just another dumbass sitcom except it happened to have bush in it yeah you know it was like married with children but it was set in the white house you know like it wasn't there haven't been a whole lot of really truly sharp political satires that were very specifically about things that were identifiably happening at that moment in this country you know even v sort of disguises things well i think mr robot has kind of tried Actually, yes. Mr. Robot has been very direct. And Sam Esmile actually tweeted out a quote-unquote leaked Mr. Robot script that incorporated Trump. It had Elliot um, making some sort of comment about Trump being our leader. I I forget the the line exactly. But, I mean, it was was hard to tell if he was just – if that was something he was actually working on or not. But I I absolutely (laughs) – think that next season on Mr. Robot, we're going to see references to President Trump throughout the season. Ah, uh, but see, here's the here's the incredible thing about that. I actually followed the, uh, a bunch of different threads on Twitter after he mm-hmm. tweeted that out. And the thing that struck me was, just as I was mentioning at the top of this segment about how, you know, reports of harassment and, and, and abuse by Trump supporters directed against people after this election are immediately being denied mm-hmm. by, by his supporters. I mean, it, you know, they're literally denying it that it happened and calling it a hoax and a false flag. Well, something bizarrely similar happened when Esmail said that, which is that I saw um, a, a Trump supporter and fan of Mr. Robot arguing with him and saying, your show was uh, always a critique of Hillary Clinton. It was always a critique of the forces that made Hillary Clinton, and I can't believe you don't understand that. And this guy was basically Trump-splaining Mr. Robot <laughs> to the guy who created Mr. Robot. Wow. wow, And this was, to me, symptomatic of a predicament that um, a lot of conservatives, most conservatives probably find themselves in, which is the vast majority of entertainment in this country is made by progressives. Yeah, And you have to find a way to filter that out. Otherwise, you can't listen to any music. You can't watch any TV shows. You can't watch any movies. And, and increasingly, you can't watch any sports because people are taking a knee during the Pledge mm-hmm. of Allegiance. And, and that's got to be well, really hard. And, you know, my friend Victor Morton, who's a, a conservative uh, Film critic and editor, um, he's talked about that with me a lot, and like he he has to make kind of allowances that liberals don't have to make. Like his he, one of his favorite movies of all time is uh, JFK by Oliver Stone, which is not a person he has anything in common with politically, mm-hmm. but he he loves that movie as a movie. But he has to factor out his knowledge of the political point of view that it's coming right. from. So you know maybe liberals are going to have to do that now if pop culture shifts over to the right. I don't know. I feel like. Pop culture will remain pretty progressive, or and then the one, 
the elements of it that aren't always haven't been like a CBS Kevin James show or, right. you know, we did an interview with Michael Moore who predicted the Trump win months ago and did a documentary on him called Trump Land. And he said that everyone should be watching The Bachelor because that is what America is watching. And I, you know, there's some truth to that. And then that kind of stuff will continue to exist as well. I've seen more than one think piece spring up already arguing that Trump's entire presidential run is basically a reality show with a preliminary round where he's in, you know, he's 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 battling against uh, rivals for the Republican nomination and then the final round against Hillary Clinton. And then he's, you know, he's ultimately not so much elected as crowned. And I can definitely see that. Like, I don't think I think that's maybe an overly simplistic way to characterize everything that happened. But definitely um, 10 years of watching Trump on television prior to this prepared us for the the inevitability of Trump as the guy who's going to be on television for the next four years. Um, There's even before Trump was elected too. there, there was a piece on um, Pacific Standard about, you know, how. Uh, TV in the in a Trump era, I think it was called, and kind of how Trump is changing what we consider going too far. And they interviewed the Jane the Virgin showrunner, Jenny Snyder Ehrman, and she talked about a scene in this season where you see Jane's first kiss with Michael. And she it was originally going to be a kiss where he abruptly kisses her without giving her time to demonstrate demonstrate consent, mm-hmm. which is often a very romantic tool used on television where the, the guy just leans in and kisses her mid-sentence. Yeah. And um, sometimes sometimes the woman does that to the man. That's true. That's yeah. true. And then she's, she said in light of Trump, she wanted there to be consent involved. So she rewrote it to have kind of a more mutual thing happen, which, you know, seems it doesn't seem that serious if you when you think about it, you know. No, but, you but know, at ju- the same yeah. time, it's like. These are the things that people are thinking about, you know, because it, it, these are little symbols of that that can feel more. What she said is they can feel more dangerous right now in terms of what we're talking about and what we're faced with. It's you know? so funny that you say that because j- literally just last night I was thinking about I was making a mental list of some of my favorite movies and realizing how many of them contain moments like that, like on the waterfront. Mm. has a scene like that mm-hmm. where it's like a sudden impulsive kiss with some force involved and ultimately everything is fine. But like that's, you know, maybe that's a trope that we're going to have to wean ourselves of. I almost said Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, you know, creators are, are mindful about that kind of thing already. But it, but it's interesting to consider, are they going to be extra mindful mm-hmm. of stuff like that going forward um, in this environment? That might that might be one of the few positives, maybe, <laughs> to come out of this. Well, that's a pretty slim silver lining, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to make my stomach ache go away, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's it for the topic this week. Up next, we're speaking with Vincent Rodriguez. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for me. Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.
when I was a kid, I used to wonder, I have this theory, and maybe this explains more about my psyche, but everything happens for a reason, but you don't necessarily get to know why in the moment it's happening. But if you memorize a, a, as much as you can about your past, and then in the future, when you hit a moment, you can go, huh, this connected to this, connected to this, and that's what got me here. You don't always get to do that. It doesn't always work, mm -hmm. but sometimes... In this particular case, it worked. I'm like, oh, what a trip. <laughs> That's one of the things that I say on this podcast often, which is um, I, have a, I have a much higher threshold with writing that people would criticize as too on the nose because life is filled with metaphors. Like, life is constantly handing you metaphors and, like, suggesting connections as a novel would. When you look back on it, you see, oh, this is how this all fits. Yes, together. which is funny because we just talked about that in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She was looking for a sign. Right. I got to right. find a sign. She's walking by. She's like, okay, that kid's wearing a cruddy for him. That could be a Josh sign. She's wondering who to choose. Right. I'm like, oh, that guy's like, that guy just bought like a bunch of booze. Oh, that could be a Greg sign. <laughs> <laughs> and then, ooh, that person's wearing a toupee. That could just be a bad life choice. And then she's like so confused. <laughs> and then and then we parallel that in the end of the episode where um, it's that romantic rom-com moment where like it's the moment where um, the girl says, meet me at this bridge at this time mm -hmm. on this day. And if yeah. you're there, we're going to we're gonna move forward. And if you're not there, I'll know it was never meant to be and you don't want to be with me anymore. So we get to that moment. The affair, she's on, affair to remember, Sleepless in Seattle. Yes, so she's okay. at the bridge. And then um, you see her, at, uh, so you see her at the bridge, and then we cut to Greg walking into the shot. He pauses by a tree, and he's looking, and then we do a POV shot of Rebecca, and she's, like, looking very wistfully, and then the sun's bright, and you hear, like, you hear the birds chirping, like, you hear the... And then you do it, and then we go back to Greg's POV, but we're slightly further away to see this beautiful environment, and all of a sudden... It goes from focus on her to focus to forefront, and there's a sign. This is danger, rough waters. Right. And he, like, then we cut back to his face, and he goes, oh, shit, what do I do? Yeah. Should I follow, love, you know, follow my heart, or should I go with what I know is logical? So he does the... He does the opposite of what Rebecca did in the pilot, because Rebecca saw a light on me and heard birds chirping and stuff, too, and she ran after <coughs> me. And Greg has the same opportunity with Rebecca in this episode, but he doesn't chase after her. He runs. He takes the sign, and he, he goes away. <laughs> so it's really interesting to, you know, sometimes I think it, it it's up to you to make that choice, I guess. And you, and you never get to know what would happen if, because you didn't do that. You did this other thing. So. Well, and Harold Bloom wrote a whole book basically saying that uh, Freud comes from Shakespeare. You know, so we probably have... There's probably something real behind all this. Behind you know? all... Behind behind the idea that the connection between fiction and life is a lot closer than we like to think it is. Who says it's different? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell those people they're stupid dum-dum heads. <laughs> Not to make things political, but I feel like, you know, this week, that's that's what everyone's yeah, talking everyone's about. Everyone's going to want to... And yeah. you talking about, you know, everything happening for a reason, I wonder, mm -hmm. is that how you kind of see what happened? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> I do not. Uh, I, I also think it's tragic. It's tragedy. Um, when 9-11, uh, you know, Pulse, Columbine, 
not supposed to happen. And and this shows a lot about what's kind of wrong in our country. There's a lot of things that are wrong in our country, and in in in, in, in any country, you could argue that as well. But um, but right now, this is this is a huge blow, and I think a lot of us are feeling the mourning. Like there's a there's there's a lot of there's a lot of somber energy mm-hmm. since this election, and it's caused a lot of sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, says the uh, says the bartender at a midtown dive bar who said that day everyone just came in crying or just started to cry. Yeah. And I went, yeah, yeah, I, I can get that. Um, but there's also a lot of hope. Um, unfortunately, we're also dealing with a lot of a lot of human um, we're dealing with with a lot of anger and and a lot of hostility and it's really scary I think that's what a lot I think we're just stirring in this pot of emotion right now a lot of us are scared a lot of us are sad a lot of us some of us are really happy with the results because of our you know particular political choices and the majority of us are fearful for you know what our country actually stands for and right now doesn't stand for that and and I say this as a person who is not I'm not the most political person I would I would lump myself into the category of being a dude who who doesn't pay attention to politics and rarely has for a long time and most recently decided I need to speak up because my voice is ever so important if not then ever before but more important now and um and it, it speaks. It kind of makes me think of wow. How, how long have I gone without voicing my vote or voicing my concern? And it's kind of taught me a really. It's an expensive, uh, unfortunate way to learn this lesson. But I think a lot of us are learning this lesson. Um, those of us who aren't political, who just chose to be in, who be political this year, or who are kind of new to the to the um, to the party. But um, but yeah. So I'm I'm kind of in a daze because there's a lot. I don't know about because I'm purely ignorant um, but I know that I am and that's why there's certain things I don't choose to talk I choose not to talk about because I know I don't know that much about it um, but from what I do know I I feel the sadness I feel the anger um, but I also have a lot of hope and I'm a firm believer of inspiring others by being an example and you do that by being kind and by communicating, by using your words, by not shutting down someone else's idea, but by having a conversation about it. Uh, there's a gentleman on, on my Facebook who is a who is a Trump supporter, and I am not. Uh, if that wasn't obvious. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, what? What? <laughs> All of you go what? <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, he he has a lot of things to say about the things I post, um, and which I, is again not very political. But a lot of it is like, oh, this is you know, you know, once you know, one time rhetoric, and he's throwing all these you know words that I don't use in me, and saying this isn't the case, and he's good for our country, and I just let him say what he wants. You know, I haven't defriended, unfriended him or anything. I said, you know what, you're going to say, and you think what you want to think. And that's okay. But the fact that you don't see the destruction that this is causing yeah. is the is highly unfortunate 
and 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 he's one of millions who thinks that way. Yes. For whatever mm-hmm. reason, and instead of saying I'm going to cut you off, or push you to a side, and alienate you, we're in conversation, and I have my belief, and you have your belief, and we're not horrible people. Like you've never, I don't think he's killed anyone. I haven't killed anyone. We're not doing hate crimes or anything but we're two people who do have opposing ideas and I feel like I want to I'm trying to allow that to be what it is and know that it's separate from the hate crimes the you know the the, the sexism the the I, I, I don't even have words for it the, I don't the, think I'm, that it is separate the, you yeah I was you know? gonna say the same thing I don't think that it is separate I think that a lot of people voted to save a few bucks on their taxes or because they feel that their white privileges have been threatened and they don't care about the collateral damage. And that bothers me. Yeah. It's a bothers selfish, me a it lot. is a selfish decision. It's the attitude mm. of it's, it's the good Germans who voted in this election. Well, and I've seen a lot of people saying, you know, when Obama won, we didn't get upset like this. I'm like, that is so much false equivalence. I think my head just exploded all over the place. <laughs> like, I yeah. can't, I don't even know how to address that. If you can't see that what's going on right now is very, very different and that Trump is very different from Obama, I just don't know what to say. That feeling that you just, like I I felt, I looked at the screen, looked at your face and saw an emotion come out of you that where you were just like, that's a a shock where you go, you you don't have words. Mm -hmm. That feeling that there's a chemical that rushes through your body. You're just like, it's it's the equivalent of really... Or I can't even on like mm-hmm. social media, and I think that's why there's like I don't necessarily know what to say. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how to react because there's so much disbelief in. Is I can't believe this is happening, and maybe and 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 you could argue that. And there's plenty of times in our history where I think people have felt that, but right now I, I thought we were really really progressive. And, and so I feel like we've taken some steps back. And but um, No, and I mean, we, we do live in this little bubble and, you know, a show like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's a great bubble, It's though. a great, yeah, <laughs> it's a great bubble to live in. And oh, thank you. I, I, and I think we need shows like that right now. Exactly. That, and, that breaks, and that's the other thing, too, is that, um, so, so when 9-11 happened, I was uh, a student at the Pacific Conservatory of Performing Arts. It was, 2000, you know, 2001. And I remember we were supposed to audition for Peter Pan, um, and I, I, I wasn't. My alarm didn't go off, and it's got boom, 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 boom. Vincent, you have to come to the living room. Like a, a tragedy has occurred in New York. I'm like, what? I go in and I see it on the screen, and I'm standing there, and I don't really. It doesn't seem real at all, because I, I'm watching it going, this, this can't be happening. <laughs> so I go to school. And we go there, and we're like, we're gathering in CBC 18. We need to have a company meeting. And it's all of us in a circle, and we're all just in that state of shock that, like, nothing is moving. And at the end of, we all got to say how we felt, but um, at the end, our conservatory director, Mark, said kind of what you're saying is that this is one of the most important, this is a very important moment for us to recognize what is happening, what can we do about it now, how can we deal with it, and how can we help heal, because this is a huge blow to to us. And here, you are in the theater school. What power do we have? Like, if anything, this is the most important time to do what we do. So we did a benefit um, to help to raise awareness. We, we, we read off all the names and that benefit of the people that we lost. 
and it was just a reminder of like as being an artist yeah I feel kind of silly I sing and dance and act for a living yeah. but similar to what you're saying um, I'm good I'm good is that it's important yeah. for, for, for us to have that outlet because we need that escapism and our and unfortunately for for our particular show people love the escape um, but they also enjoy the, the bit of reality that we include in our show and that's a testament to our writing team and our and our leaders of that team and that's Aline Brosh McKenna and Rachel yeah. Bloom and they their choice to write that kind of show that isn't going to ignore these other things they're going to actually bring them up and talk about them Thoughtful. that's one of the most striking things to me about the show and one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite shows on the air that it continually is introducing us to types mm-hmm. to types who are types that we don't normally see on TV like yeah. they're you know they're types in the way that musical comedy characters are types but they're not the same types that you always see. They're like they're identifying new. They're like archetypes. They're like new, new archetypes. You know, yes, they are. Right. They are like well, your character in particular. Like <laughs> I can't think of I can't think of another character like you on a comedy. Thanks. You know, like the way you're at the you're at the center of the action. You're culturally specific, mm-hmm. and yet your concerns are universal. And I never feel like you're just an attachment to the heroine. Yeah, I'm not. If anything, she is an attachment to me, and right. that's the that's that's the premise Literally, of the show. Yeah. It's like, that's, <laughs> that's the joke. You know? Yeah, it is. But that's the but that's the beautiful. That's another beautiful kind of unspoken message about our show <clears throat> is that I feel like that's one of the reasons why it's so relatable. Because um, people, I think we're so used to seeing the same kinds of characters on TV shows or movies, and we hold on to them and. They obviously work because people buy the tickets, right? But our show wanted to do something that was new. And Rachel has said in, in numerous interviews, you know, what's, if you're not going to create something new, why are you creating it? So with our show, mm-hmm. we're, that's why she t- likes to introduce um, these non-trope-based characters or non-stereotypical characters. If anything, we're, um, we're known for uh, throwing tropes out the window and breaking stereotypes and like the title of the show which many people preface with oh my god I love your show I didn't watch it at first because the title turned me off but then I watched it and it was really good I was like okay don't judge a book by its cover like our show is written by two feminists did you know that didn't think so Um, and and that's so it's almost like and people react in a way that's so refreshing like oh my god I can't believe your show exists well you should believe it There, there there are artists out there who are creating New new works and and taking not necessarily new ideas but taking ideas that people haven't been using like these people on our these characters on our show didn't just start existing we've always existed Josh Chance I grew up with Josh Chance that's how I was able to identify with him and and know where he was coming from when I was introduced to the character so it's 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 now like this interesting like, we're talking about it like it's new. Right. But to some of, to a lot of us, right. it's so not new. No, right. It's like our life. It's, it's just real life. It's just weird that you haven't seen it on TV for so long. I'm looking at my watch, going, "Why have I? Yeah, I grew up. In, I grew up in San Diego. I went to the same high school Renee. Renee Gouvet did. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And yeah, I mean, it's ex- half my high school is Filipinos. So is mine. It's, it's crazy to think that this is, but it's like so amazing to actually see it for the first time you know like normalized normalized yeah, yeah. And this is guy this guy's not the a he's not the a student with a pocket protector nope. who wants to be a computer guy <laughs> no he's, he's like he's a, he's a dude he loves technology kind of he knows a lot of ro- blo- a lot about robots <laughs> <laughs> and he has a lot of gloves um 
yeah, he's he's not your typical anything. How do you like this season in particular? You know, it starts out with with Josh kind of mooching off of Rebecca a bit, <laughs> using her as an Airbnb. Um, you know, exploiting, sleeping with her, but then moving, but then going to bed on the couch. Um, yeah, like how did you did this change your view of his character at all in terms of like? Change my view or of the character. Do you see him as a selfish person? Yes. Josh is selfish. But the reason why I say it with uh, with that tone is that we all have a level of selfishness. Yeah. And this is Josh's. And Josh has at a certain level of development, as all of us are. Some people grow up when they're 16 or 12 because they have to raise their younger sister and their parents are too busy or it's only one parent. And some people, like Josh, are 26, 27 and are still in their head like 15 years old it's different for everybody i've i have some uh, when i was growing up i was closer to more older people than younger people and i would feel often alienated and uh i started reading articles about like what how how to know if you're an old soul because someone had called me that and someone also uh and so i i was like all right so i'm i'm an extroverted old soul <laughs> alright that, that makes nice sense because um, I was wondering why I felt so disconnected and and um, you know just being having friends who were older meant having a different like point of view and so I was always kind of progressive and kind of focused which is like the opposite of Josh in that he's he's very young and, and uh, he's going back to live with his parents and we still haven't re- really talked about what Josh did in New York for the months he was there, what went wrong? Hmm. That he and he had to he had to he wanted to go back home. So there's a lot. So those questions kind of percolate in my brain. But um, but that's why I, I very quickly go like, yeah, he's that's the Josh. that's the that's this show's version of Lost's. Uh, you know what's in the what is it? What's in the what's in the box? The hatch. The hatch. The hatch. <laughs> what's in the hatch? Yeah. 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 This is the. Mystery. Are we going to find out the answer to that about what happened to him in New York? I hope so. I don't think we we haven't discussed it yet. It hasn't come up. Um, Do you have an idea of what you think happened? Um. Yeah. What did he say? I think it was like eight months. How long did he say he was there? Yeah, like. Um, I think I I'm not sure if it's eight because eight is a long time. If you're Josh <laughs> to be <laughs> in New York City, where did you work? Oh, I know where he worked. You know how I know where he worked? Because uh, the business card I gave Rebecca, um, and I don't know if this is, I don't know, huh, spoiler, or I don't know. It like, was on the no, show. It was on the show, but no one saw it, so yeah. maybe they're like, no, that that's not real, or that's not the case. I uh, my, The business card in my wallet that I gave to Rebecca in the pilot, <clears throat> I worked for a travel agency. Mm. I was not a manager. He is not a manager. <laughs> he's not management material, unfortunately. Um, but he is very friendly and outgoing, and you know customers like him. But um, he, yeah, he just worked for a travel company, and maybe. And, and we also, I think, there was a brief discussion about how ironic that it was that right. that 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 Josh, someone who really wants to just stay in West Covina, worked at a travel agency. Right. He probably didn't even go anywhere for those eight months. <laughs> he would watch people go, go visit beautiful, awesome places. Um, 
and I can relate to that because there was um, for those uh, I'm from San Francisco and uh, I, it wasn't until my senior year of high school did I really feel um, aware of the world outside of Daly City. So so Daly City was my West Covina. I affectionately call it the West Covina of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and uh, I started going to, I'd been, I'd been to nice restaurants um, that weren't like a Chili's or like a Sizzler <laughs> yeah. or a Denny's. Uh, and I started taking the BART train and that, and I'd taken the BART train before, but I mean like actually, I don't know, there was an awareness that all of a sudden I had in my senior year and that was probably around the time because I was coming to terms with my sexuality and saying well alright I'm totally gay and it, that's totally fine and I'm gonna go be an actor because that's what makes me happy um, and I was just kind of growing up very quickly so I so I did I did that me Vince I, I grew up very very fast and you know stopped carrying a backpack had a softer briefcase in high school my senior year and um, started wearing khaki pants and dress shirts because I kind of skipped. I was like, I'm done. I was like, you yeah. know, I was like, holy shit. I know who I am. I know what I want to do. I can actually create my future. It was like an, it was like a huge epiphany. So when we were, when I was picking classes for my senior year with my counselor, um, he's like, so Vincent, um, you, you, you only need 300 and like 12 credits to graduate. I'm like, okay. He's like, you have 375. <laughs> and I was like, how is that possible? He was like, well, you, you, you've taken jazz band every zero period for the last four years. You were a service commissioner for a few of those years as well. And you were in marching band and you were in theater and you, you got all these credits. <laughs> so you don't you don't have there's you you can get away with only taking two uh, uh four out of six classes this year senior year so i did so um i was a ta for a teacher who became a mentor of mine and then um and then uh i had a free period and then uh another period i was uh i volunteered in band because i was a band member and so i would go to like concert band which was our beginning jazz band for freshmen and I would sit in because I played clarinet and I would sit in and lead um, uh, oh god sectionals with them for the clarinet section but I was also in jazz band and I was also in marching band so I was either after school doing in a musical or a play or I was working with a marching band and so my senior year was a year of like getting ready to be an adult and then I did that by going to a junior college CSM and failing all of my classes because they were all academic and I didn't give a crap about academics and that's the other thing I had to understand is that wow I really I really don't give a shit about any of this I need to do what I do give a shit about so this next semester I took um, nothing but arts classes at Skyline College and um, I didn't really even get to perform I took like a music appreciation class which was amazing uh, I took a voice class which was okay I took a choir class I learned a few things there and then I TA'd for a dance program and uh, that was around the time I was auditioning for Youth Conservatory ACT I was meeting the teacher who would help me get into PCPA I was auditioning for PCPA I was doing um, a community theater production of Guys and Dolls I was just immersing myself in what I love to do because I had this theory in my head that if this is really what I'm born to do then this is all gonna go this is all gonna feel like like natural to me and that's exactly what happened so I did all that I trained with my 
acting instructor. I got into PCPA. I graduated PCPA. I booked one of the first shows I ever auditioned for, which was 42nd Street. I joined the union. I toured in a first national tour of a Broadway show for nine months. I went to New York. I auditioned my face off as a union actor. I slept on couches. I carried around a 60-pound duffel bag. I was at Starbucks on 54th and Broadway as my office holding holding a 16-pound laptop. It was old then. And three months later, I had two offers. One was for the first national tour of Thoroughly Modern Millie, um, and the other one was for the the brand new debut of a uh, of stage musical of Irving Berlin's White Christmas, and I took White Christmas. And that one credit like helped propel me, and I didn't stop working for about two or three years in New York. I would just go from job to job to job, like a week or two between jobs. Like I would literally go to do, I'd be doing a show, and then have a week off. And during that week off, I'd audition for a few other shows and then go do whatever my next show was. And while I was doing that show, I'd get an offer for the next show. And I did that for two or three years. I did White Christmas for three Christmases. Uh, Original Company, San Francisco, Boston uh, premiere, and Toronto premiere. And so that kind of propelled me. And so, but all all that momentum came from this period of high school where I decided I can actually create my life and see if this is going to work. And then I just stepped up to see, am I good enough? Can I have this? I want it so bad. And the world was like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, come, come this way. <laughs> you got it, you got it, kid. Just come on in. I'm like, sweet, thanks. I mean, that's a real testament of working hard, and that, that can make you a successful person. I, I'm almost tempted to say, you have my vote. <laughs> that's how inspiring you yeah. just were. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I have a really simple, very geeky question. It's more of a request. Can okay. you tell me about the angry dance number uh, from angry, season one? Angry Josh. So, yeah. Yes. Josh yeah, just, I would dance. like, what was it like to shoot that and what did it feel like to perform? I was that? in pain. <laughs> I was in a lot of pain. Um, when I told me about it, I got really excited and it it was a dream come true because it was uh, Catherine Burns, our, choreo- our Emmy nominee, Emmy award winning choreographer, uh, is particularly fancy with the 80s jazz dance. That's how you have to say it. <laughs> 80s jazz dance. You have to drop your dance through the nasal resonance. Um, so, he, so we 80s did out in the rehearsal room and in the martial arts uniform, they're thinking like the camera and like the headband, and it was all. It all just kind of everything like fed each other so well, and I remember yeah. when Gregor, uh, Rachel's husband, who is also a writer on our show and, and consultant on our show, was just so delighted. He was like, "Oh my God, I'm so excited! It's finally happening. We've talked about this, but it's actually going to happen. Josh is going to do like an '80s footloose it's jazz incredible. dance in this dojo," <laughs> and and we did it. And I took ten martial arts for ten years. I have two black belts, and uh, so it was fun to combine my trading as a dancer and as a martial artist in the number and like ooh can we make sure there's a tumbling pass in there ooh can we make sure there's a dive roll because that was a thing right. and then ooh um, can we do nunchucks can I do single and double and then ooh <laughs> can we do a board break and then and then we, we cut the board break and the idea my idea was to um, they would uh they would film it in, in, in a slow motion camera, so I would you, you you'd see it tossed in the air, let go, and then you see it break in the middle of the screen. And then when the board moves, you just see my fist and like my face going. <laughs> we cut that idea <laughs> um, uh, for the purposes of time. So it, it was very very fast, um, and it was really intense because I don't know how to market. That's a dance term for like 
you don't do it full out, you mark it. Ask Catherine. She's like, yeah, Vini doesn't like to mark. I'm like, I don't, because it made Fosse nervous. Um, Fosse's a legendary choreographer and dancer. And so that's kind of how I roll, too, because um, he's one of my idols. So it was that's kind of what it was like. I was in pain. Um, I hyperextended my elbow when I did the board break. So that was an annoyance that kind of just made me irritable the whole time. And it was happening very, very fast. It was very intense. I, I didn't have a lot of time to recover between each take. And that meant doing, like, my back handspring, my aerial, my... There was an aerial in there where I did a cartwheel and there was no hands. And then that was last minute. That was not choreographed. So there would be times where, like, just play the music. Okay, let's just film Vincent Go. Because <laughs> they were going to cut it anyway. So there was an element of improvisation to it, too. Um, and it was a whole lot of fun. Uh, I wish I could say it was a calm experience, but it wasn't. It was a... It was... <laughs> It turned out great, but for me, I'm just saying it was <laughs> kind of. I was a little bit of a wreck. If you could, um, so, if you could somehow combine two of your great talents, mm -hmm. uh, musical performance and kicking ass, yeah, you could create an entirely new genre. I, I would love to, but in Power Rangers, they did that, and it was called Hip Hop Keto, <laughs> and it was presented by Zach, the black, the black. Well, he was a black actor playing the Black Ranger. Mm. Funny that. Um, <laughs> it was like, hip-hop, keto, body roll, kick, sweep, pose. <laughs> and, like, and I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, I was a huge Power Rangers fan, but I was also like, that's kind of dumb because why would you dance while you're fighting? Um, unless it's in musical comedy. Um, so yeah, but I, I'm, also, I'm, I'm also a magician and I'm dying to like use that in what some some form that would be entertaining um we still have some time season two is not over and fingers crossed for season three but uh but yeah well thank you so much for being with us vince thank you <laughs> thanks for having me guys yeah. That's just about it for this week's show, but before we go, it's time for this week's ARIA. As we mentioned last week, the ARIA is a space for one of us to take a few minutes to talk to you all directly about something that's going on in TV right now that we feel passionately about. Jen's going to give us this week's installment of the ARIA. Jen, take it away. During this podcast, we've talked a lot about the recent election. There's obviously a great deal to unpack on that subject, and I'm sure we'll be taking stuff out of our collective nightmare suitcase for years to come. But I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about how the results of this election represent the culmination of trends that have been building in our culture for years. I'm not talking about anything explicitly political. I'm talking about the way we consume information and entertainment. Much has been said in the wake of the election about how Americans are living in bubbles. I take that a step further. I think we're living in sub-bubbles of bubbles. Just like our political landscape, our media landscape is fractured and has been for a long time. The digital revolution that made it possible to watch practically any TV show from anywhere we choose has also made it possible for us to sit in the same room with our loved ones while staring at multiple screens projecting vastly different images. The question, what's everyone doing, might yield a single answer, watching TV or scanning the internet. But what's being watched or scanned may vary wildly from person to person. Our worldviews are being shaped in potentially radically divergent ways, even when we're sharing the same space at the same time. I believe that technology has been a force for good on a number of levels, but I also think that it's made us grow too accustomed to sitting next to one another without looking up or listening. While we have more ways to connect with each other than ever before, it's also much, much easier to tune each other out. Forget clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. 
We're earbuds in, heads down, can't win. That's not the only reason some Americans didn't anticipate the outcome of this election and couldn't figure out how to bridge the divide that led to it, but it's certainly a factor. Here's another factor. The rise of conflict is a source of entertainment in the news and entertainment media. Over the past 15 years or so, we've watched people rip each other to shreds routinely on cable news shows, in our social media feeds, and, yes, on reality TV, the genre responsible for elevating Donald Trump to celebrity status. The voices that tend to get the most attention in all of these arenas are the loudest ones. And there's no question that in this election, Trump's voice was the loudest. His litany of lies, hateful statements, and threats dictated the conversation. Clinton, for understandable reasons, seized on the things he did and said as examples of why he should be dismissed as commander-in-chief material. Every time Trump did something outrageous or appalling, the news media reported on it and the rest of us gabbed about it, privately or publicly, on Twitter or Facebook. We were all so busy being appalled by what had happened at the most recent rally or debate that what might happen if Trump were elected got lost in the dialogue. Not entirely lost, but lost more often than it should have. To put this in the more succinct terms that Dave Chappelle recently used on Saturday Night Live, we've actually elected an internet troll as our president. Yes, we can do that, America. And yes, we just did. There are tons of reasons why it happened, but I'll focus on this one. We didn't take Trump seriously on both sides of the aisle. His supporters didn't take Trump's bigotry seriously, and many still don't. Clinton's supporters didn't take Trump seriously because it seemed so clear to them that no one in their right mind would vote for this man. I'm pretty sure they take the idea of him seriously now. In May, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about how Trump's candidacy was operating according to reality show rules and Americans were interpreting it accordingly. Having a reality TV celebrity running for commander in chief may subconsciously signal our brains to participate in this election in the same way we've grown accustomed to consuming reality shows, I said at the time. Not as if they're real, but instead believing that none of it is genuine, that none of it has any actual consequences. President Donald Trump is a reality now, and that has very real, potentially alarming consequences. In the wake of this election, even the most sophisticated creators and consumers among us would be wise to do some soul-searching, to ask whether our sometimes glib, detached attitude toward what we see on TV and the internet made it hard to grasp the ramifications of four years with an apprentice star as our president. We should ask how we can take steps to ensure that the most rational, enlightened voices in our country prevail, not the ones sounding the most barbaric of yawps. We should take out our earbuds and listen to each other. And we should do what, in a positive example of fiction colliding with reality, Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation told us to do in that open letter that went viral last week. We should acknowledge the results of this election and what they say about America, but we should not accept them. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening.